We're working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I'm going to read again the end of the passage that Jack read for us earlier. This is the part that we're going to be focusing on this morning. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 1179, 1179. Having described the life, death, resurrection, ascension and return of Jesus Christ, Paul then has some pointed things to say to his readers about their everyday lives. Verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Help us to receive, O Lord, what you want to give us from your word now. In Jesus' name. Amen. The the most famous short summary of the message of this letter uh, was written by a commentator who wrote in Latin, and it's just two words in Latin. It's slightly longer in English, but it's essentially... I rejoice. You rejoice too. That's where God wants to lead us this morning from his word. Some of them are having quite a lot of trouble rejoicing together. Imagine if you'd started a club of some kind. And then you'd have to go away, perhaps for a long period, on holiday or been ill. And people in the club, which you had started and were still the kind of leader of, um, were, were, were just moaning and bickering, and two in particular had fallen out badly. And you could only communicate with them um, by writing an email or a text or something. I wonder how you would try and approach that situation. That was the problem that he had. 
And I imagine many of us would say, oh, come on, just snap out of it and you know, get real. We formed this club for this purpose. It has an important purpose. Um, and, and it's just such a waste of time and just so silly and childish. Well, that would be one approach, wouldn't it? Another might be to say, think of so-and-so. So-and-so being someone that they all knew. It was a really inspiring role model of someone who'd been in a difficult situation and remained cheerful and worked through difficulties. Think of, think of so-and-so. Be like them. There's a sense in which Paul does both of those things. But the kind of heavy engineering of what he does takes his readers and us a lot further than just being told, for goodness sake, stop being so argumentative. Or think of Nelson Mandela and be like Nelson or or something like that. And you could almost say that it, it feels like a little bit of a kind of sledgehammer to crack a nut because what he does is to talk to them about the most amazing part of human history, which is itself a kind of sense of the whole structure of human history as God enters our world so that he can save it. And last week we looked at this diagram which just expresses in pictorial form um, uh, what he's talking about in uh, verses 6 to 8. God from all eternity, the second person of the Trinity in glory, chose in obedience to his Father to come to earth as a baby, to become human in every way except for our sinfulness and our sin. And then in obedience to the Father's will for our salvation, to allow himself to die, and not just any old death, but the worst possible kind of death, including dying for our sin in our place. And then was raised again and ascended on high, exalted, worshipped, glorified, with the knowledge that one day everyone will glorify Christ. Now, if you've never heard that before, I... I hope that's something that will strike you and maybe that shape and those ideas will remain with you. This is the most important shape in all of human history. God himself acting personally to save us from ourselves and from our sin and from death and from hell and to bring us to himself. And it is with that great background that he comes to some of the issues that are a trouble and a problem in the church in Philippi once again. And he has already said, have the same mindset as Jesus. And in using that word, you could assume he was just setting Jesus up as a great role model and a great example, a kind of really inspiring example. We've all had them in our lives. Sometimes it's someone we've not met, a kind of Nelson Mandela type figure. Sometimes it's someone that we have met, and it can often be a parent, a teacher, some other figure that we've looked up to and found inspiring. And we've adopted something of their mindset in going through what we go through in our lives. And what he says to them in verse 12 is, because of what Jesus has done, persevere. Keep going. Continue to work out your salvation. So he's speaking to people who have received Christ. 
people who've said yes to Jesus, who've been converted, who've repented and believed, who've opened their hearts to him, who've decided to be his followers and his disciples, who've trusted him for eternal salvation. This is not a general appeal to all of society to be inspired by Jesus Christ. This is an appeal to people who belong to Jesus and in whom Jesus is living, who've received Jesus' salvation, to keep working that salvation out. And if if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, it's really important you get this distinction. We're not trying to just inspire you to live an amazing, heroic life full of self-sacrifice based on the example of Jesus this morning. If you think that, You've, you've, you've got the wrong idea. What you're saying is something actually, actually much, much more powerful and inspiring and a much better invitation to be able to give. And the Christian church has made a huge error in all sorts of ways by simply setting up the example of Jesus as something to be followed as a mere example. Rather than offering Jesus himself as someone to be received, as saviour and then his mind be released by the power of his spirit in our lives and he starts by saying to them yes you've received Jesus salvation but you've got to keep working out the consequences of that And again, sometimes the Christian church, in its desire to say to people, all you need to do is believe and then you'll be saved. Sometimes we've given the impression that salvation is something that we just have. It doesn't mean matter what you do after that, because you're safe, you're saved. You've got the eternal life insurance policy through Jesus' life life and death on the cross. I'm safe now, I've ticked that box, I just get on with my life and then when when I die I go to heaven. And actually the message of the Bible is more subtle and full and rich than that. And it's actually something which is much happier than that as well. It is that we must keep working out the salvation that Christ has given us. There's a very famous story, and I think this was late 19th century, of a bishop who was on a train journey. And a young woman who was part of the Salvation Army, who in those days were very big on trying to evangelize people and good on them. Uh, She came and sat opposite him and saw he was a bishop and thought, well, everyone needs the gospel. Always a good thought to have, Um, even with bishops and pastors and people. And uh, and she said, "Uh, Bishop, are you saved? And he gave her just a little lesson in, I believe, a very gentle and unpatronizing way. And it's a lesson of salvation in three tenses. He said, I have been saved from the guilt of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin. I will be saved from the presence of sin. And in that brilliant nutshell, he encapsulated the three tenses of salvation And particularly what Paul is talking about is that middle one. I am being saved from the power of sin. And that is why Paul says to them, continue to work out your salvation. 
We receive forgiveness, but we receive also a kind of motive power, a new life, a new force within us, which changes us and makes us different. And he knew that in dealing with the squabbles and the moaning and the groaning and the arguments and particularly the tension between these two people who he would name later on in the letter, he needed to remind them that dealing with a problem with being a grumbler or dealing with a problem with a tense relationship actually is part of God's work of saving you progressively from the power of sin. Think about that for a moment. And if you're not a Christian, think how attractive actually that is. The delivery from those habits and patterns which we can't save ourselves from. Notice that it is their responsibility. Notice too that it's not dependent on him being with them. Not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. This is not, de- not dependent on any single one senior Christian person. Such an important thing to realise. You are not dependent on any one of your church leaders here or anywhere else. You're not dependent on any one person who's discipling you or inspiring you. In the absence of any of those figures, we can still do this and we have to do it all the more. Notice the responsibility that there is. And notice that this is something to be done with a due sense of seriousness. He uses that phrase, fear and trembling. And that's almost a kind of um, technical term or a, a kind of code phrase in the New Testament for the proper recognition of someone who is in authority and near you. It's like used for people and their attitude to those who are their masters, if they're slaves, and other examples as well. And the reason he uses it here is because, yes, we have this big responsibility. But God is present with us. And he is the one underlying everything. It is God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. And that is an immensely serious thing. A simply amazing thing. Those words, fear and trembling, there's something, I mean, almost a little bit eerie, isn't there? Just thinking God himself is working in me. But I hope that by the end of the morning, you'll leave this service aware of what's happening in you as a Christian and with a great sense of awe about it as well as rejoicing. And if you're not yet a Christian, an awareness not just that you should be inspired by Jesus Christ and go out and do all sorts of heroic things, but aware of something far greater, that Jesus Christ, who did all those things himself, has done them for you and wants to enter your life, you personally, be present in your life and bring you forgiveness and bring you personal transformation. As someone has said, God is at work in them. 
the unseen influence behind every good thought, the secret spring of every good need, the power that frees our will to do his own, which is true freedom. We were spiritually dead. We've sung about that in several songs this morning. We needed him to come and wake us up so we could become Christians. If you're not yet a Christian, maybe those things are starting already. Because you're here this morning, you're starting to develop spiritual taste buds for Jesus and a desire for him and a will to receive him. He did all that before we were saved, but he continues to be at work. Changing our will, changing what we want, changing our willingness to do his will and to be different. And then giving us the strength to act and to discover that difference in practice. We should never think to ourselves, oh, well, it's all over now. I'm saved. I get on with my life. I can't expect much change. You know, they're going to have to put up with it and God's going to have to put up with it as well. I've reached as far as I'm going to get in terms of personal change. My, you know, they lump it. They're just going to have to lump it. I'm that sort of person. Paul says, have the mind of Christ. Being fear and trembling because God is at work in you. Consent to God's work in taking you to a far, far better place in your relationships and in your heart and in the whole of your life. He says, you've got to keep working at this. And then he tells them, particularly, about a problem he wants them to address. Verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, he does get to that point, doesn't he? I mean, he doesn't shy away from it. He does say, this kind of behavior is just unacceptable. You've got to do something about it. But he does so in a way that I think is particularly uh, inspiring and helpful because he says if you do that, you're just going to be like a star shining in the sky. And that's going to have an impact. Notice the way this is all packaged. It's not just a kind of instruction to stop grumbling and arguing. It is so that we will be living out who we are as the children of God. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of God. Let's put a few things together here. First of all, he says that a, a pattern in life of being a grumbler is something a Christian needs to work to eradicate. You're a grumbler? You've got to eradicate it, mate. We, we need to hear the force of that. He's saying stop grumbling. You're someone who picks a lot of fights, or when there's something you're going to bring up as a point to disagree, you don't make any effort, really, to do anything than jab the other person in the eye with your email or your tweet or have you do it. Or maybe it's the kind of grumbling that's done behind the scenes, which is very, very common. So it's all smiles in certain circles, but let me just go away and, and moan in a kind of glass, 
glass half empty, something's always wrong. I could talk about some of the good things that happened today, but actually I'm just going to focus on all the things all the other people got wrong. And, and God as well, because God's in charge of the weather. We have to hear the force of what he's saying. It's unacceptable for a Christian. Immediately, I feel deeply convicted. Why is it important that we understand it's unacceptable? It's because it doesn't represent what God has made us and what God is doing in us and what God want, the message God wants to send out to the world outside. Notice how he, he, he describes the world that we live in. He's quoting from the Old Testament here, but he's happy to apply it to the world of his day. A warped and crooked generation, a society that is just bent out of shape in all sorts of different ways. He applied it to his era. We apply it to ours. There are different ways of being bent out of shape, different ways for society to be dysfunctional and unhappy and miserable and at war with itself and to be grumbling and moaning and all sorts of other things. No one can deny that our society is like that, I think. And what he says is, you have this amazing opportunity to be different and to be noticed by being different. Our world notices when the church gets it wrong. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. But the world also notices when Christians get it right. There is something unmissable about Jesus Christ when his people behave like children who love each other. And when people see in Christians just a whole different approach to life. Someone applying this passage said, be known in your workplace, be known in your lab, be known in your your." Uh, your neighbourhood, be known in your social media feeds as the one who finds reasons to be cheerful. That should affect a few things that we post online, shouldn't it? As the one who finds reasons to be cheerful and refuses to jump on the grumbling conveyor belt. And I think back to my time in the secular workplace, It is so common for a culture to grow up in which people moan about management or about the organisation, the company, whatever it is, as a whole. It's almost the default conversation sometimes. You have a chance to make Jesus seem credible by being the one who doesn't jump on that particular conveyor belt. I want you to notice the connection Uh, between our behaviour in ceasing to be grumblers and arguers and our evangelism. He says, you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And some of the translation says you hold forth the word of life. So this is about giving credibility to our outreach. Let me put it in, in a kind of imaginary specific way. If you've spent the last month grumbling at work, when you give someone an invitation to an Eden Carroll service, they're less likely to come than if you've been the person who's been cheerful. 
We want to hold out the word of life. We want to say that this is where our lives have come from. We want to say that this message has changed us. And for many people, the credibility comes from the kind of culture that we have in our lives and the kind of culture that we have in our churches too. Now, don't despair. We're all on a journey here. And some of us who have inherited from family backgrounds or maybe from other contexts, maybe from our own life experiences, patterns of negativity, of pointing out what's wrong, of grumbling behind people's backs, of being argumentative and finding it hard to put in those kind of soft bits in when when we raise a complaint or a problem that, that make it much easier. You can be changed. God is at work in you. You can be made more like the kind of star that shines brightly in the sky than the kind of star that is dying and has very little light left. That's the whole point of this. To open ourselves again to God making us more like Christ in these particular areas. He wants us to persevere and to have this sense of fear and trembling and awe about it. He wants us to shine and to stop grumbling and arguing. And what that means is to have a sense of generosity about life. Of not thinking that it's, that it's in some way wimpish to be cheerful and to be positive about other people. And he wants us finally to find a deep joy in all of this. Because Christ will honour every sacrifice that we make for the gospel. I will be able then, he says, to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain. He looks forward to Jesus' return. And that word boasting is not a negative one. It's a word of exultation. He's anticipating, jumping in the air, And shouting with triumph because of God's work in the people he's writing to. That's what we can do for one another. We'll be able to do for one another. And then he reflects on the difficulties of the here and now. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So there's a picture. In the ancient world, um, there would often be the, the main sacrifice that was made in the temple some sort of animal offering that would be killed and the meat would be offered. And then there would be some drink that was kind of poured on it to complement it. I suppose in terms of many people's uh, contemporary uh, cuisine at Sunday lunches, it's kind of like the meat and the gravy. You know, the meat's the main thing, but the gravy matters as well. And, and what he says here, in effect, is, I can just see the sacrifices you're making for the gospel. Maybe he even anticipates the kind of death of the ego that is required to stop being argumentative and to stop grumbling, because it does take a death of of an ego that is developed in the wrong way. But there are many other sacrifices in their lives, and they've made big sacrifices to support him because they've sent him money. And he looks at those sacrifices, and then he looks at his own life and sees it as like the gravy on the meat. Interestingly, one commentator has pointed out not all Christian leaders see it that way around them. They tend, tend, to see, tend to see themselves as the meat and the other people as the gravy. Paul gets it the right way around. 
even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, even if we're really, really having to deny ourselves and make sacrifices for the gospel, he says, I'm really happy. I'm really happy. And I want you to be happy too. I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. And you should be glad and rejoice with me. Because to see other Christians making sacrifices for the gospel is just the most beautiful thing. To see people giving up argumentative and grumbling habits. To see people giving money for the cause of the gospel as the Philippians have done. To see sacrifices in so many ways. You think, yes, that's what Jesus deserves. One day Jesus will honour that. One day we will exult in Jesus' honour of those sacrifices. And we can be happy about it now. We've been talking a bit about writing missionary prayer letters when we're out in Madagascar and wondering quite how we're going to do that. And there is a sort of missionary prayer letter or missionary report that does its very best to make the people at home very, very aware of all the sacrifices that have been made and hopefully feel a bit guilty because they're not joining in with them. Have you read that kind of report or heard that kind of report? It, it, it's a kind of subgenre within, within, within missionary communication. And I can already feel the temptation. <laughs> look at us, look at all we're sacrificing. Well, you haven't done it, you should feel really bad about that. Now, I want you to promise me, if you sense that, I want you to remember this moment. And remember that I've said, don't be sorry for us. Rejoice. Rejoice. We rejoice when we see sacrifices other people have made. We don't have to feel bad that we haven't made exactly the same sacrifices. God has different callings for different people. But when we see sacrifices made for Christ and for the gospel, we should be filled with joy because Jesus is worth it. Because it's Jesus' life being lived out through those people. And because it proves to us how precious Jesus himself is. I went through the church members list. I sometimes do this before I preach on a Saturday. And I just thought of so many of you. And thought to myself, God is at work in all of them. And I thought again and thought the sacrifices represented in these faces and these names are huge. And in many cases hidden. But that is something simply to be celebrated and rejoiced in. Because one day it will be honoured. And because it glorifies Jesus so much. We can't be passive about our salvation. We need to work at it because God is working in us. We need to take the inspiring example of Jesus Christ and apply it to the nitty gritty of relationships inside the church and outside it. We need to be ready to make sacrifices and rejoice in making sacrifices. And we need to be saying to God himself, thank you that you're at work in me. Please take that work forward. 
What is it you want to do to change my will and my actions? Are we open to him? Do we, do we say to him, I'm in this situation. What do you want to do in me in this? In our house group a few weeks ago, I was feeling tired. And when I'm tired, I often feel irritable. I think I managed to uh, keep it unobserved. But I, I, don't know, I was sitting there just feeling a bit grumpy about everyone being in my house and wishing I was on my own. Um, sorry, those of you in my house group, but it happens sometimes. And then and we, we had a time of prayer as we were doing communion. And someone, I think it was Dan Vickers, prayed this prayer. And he just said something like, Oh, Lord, thank you that you, you melt our hardness. And as I heard that, I just thought, oh, Lord, that's what you want to do, isn't it? And that moment, I, we, we can choose. We can choose. Do we let him melt us? Are we open to him melting us? Or would we just stay hard and argumentative and bitter and grumbly? Well, I don't always make the right choices, but the Lord helped me on that occasion. Jesus' example is inspiring. But his presence within us is empowering. Let's work with him. Let's allow him to move us beyond our argumentativeness or our grumbling or the other kinds of negative zones that we occupy. Let's see the sacrifice in our own lives and in the lives of others. And let's be brought again to this place of joy. I rejoice. Rejoice with me, Paul says. And I repeat it. When I think of you, I rejoice. Rejoice with me. Let's pray. It is truly awesome, Lord God, to think that you're not just out there, but in here. We want to open ourselves to your work, that it may continue and deepen. We lift to you, Lord, the particular ways that this passage convicts us, particularly patterns of negativity. We pray, Lord, you would lead us even through sacrifice to a better place that our witness might be like stars shining in the sky. And that, O oh Lord, you would teach us and release in us the joy that is spoken of here. For the glory of your name. Amen.